we come to the God of Israel, the God of the church, the Lord of our lives, the one who has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light, the one who rules from eternity past to eternity future, and Father, the one that we trust in this hour to be our teacher and our guide. We're thankful for Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and the ministry that we receive, for the Spirit of God who dwells within us, for the presence of Christ that walks before us. And Lord, I pray that today you will touch each one of us according to our individual needs. In a group this size, there are many, many different needs. And Lord, many of us are unaware of the needs of others, but you're aware of all of them. And so, Lord, I pray that your word will be sharper than a two-edged sword to each of our hearts, touching us at that point of need today and building in us that one gift that you want from us above all other gifts, and that is faith and trust. Lord, we commit this hour to you and pray that you will be divinely present here with us this morning. We ask that you will be powerfully present throughout this complex today in service, in the, in the second hour service, and in the many Sunday school classes as they're taking place this very hour. And we'll praise you for what you do in Jesus' name. Amen. Last Sunday, we were talking about a beautiful psalm that is written in the book of Deuteronomy, known as the Song of Moses. And if you remember, we read in the 31st chapter of Deuteronomy that God said to Moses, after you're dead, your people are going to turn away, and after they've conquered the land, your people are going to turn away from me, and they're going to chase after the gods of the land which certainly wasn't a very encouraging note for Moses. But God is a God of reality, and he deals with issues as they are. And then he gave, of course, to Moses the antidote to the whole thing. Because he said, and let me read again from verses 18 and 19 of Deuteronomy 31, But I will surely hide my face in that day because of all the evil which they will do, for they will turn to other gods. Now, therefore, write this song for yourselves and teach it to the sons of Israel. Put it on their lips in order that this song may be a witness for me against the sons of Israel. So this song was specifically written for that hour of need. And when they chased after heathen gods, that this song would be brought back to them because it would be taught to them and they were to teach it to their children and God could use this song, this psalm, to convict them of their need and to bring them back to true faith. That is the purpose of the Word of God. The purpose of the Word of God is to convict us of sin and bring us back to right relationship with Him and to strengthen us in our daily walk with Him. And so, uh, last Sunday at the end of class, we began to look at the 32nd chapter, which is the Song of Moses. In, in Deuteronomy 32, the first portion of, of the song contrasts the faithfulness of God with the unfaithfulness of his people. And, and then it goes on in the next section, verses 7 through 14, to deal with the goodness of God in selecting Israel. And we read this before in previous in the Pentateuch, where God said to Israel, I didn't choose you because you were a great and mighty nation because you were a wonderful people that, you know, just that, that was obvious that I should choose you. He said, I, you were the least and the weakest of all people, and I chose you. And of course, that theme runs right through the New Testament, 
where Paul tells us that it is the weak things that God uses to confound the wise, the simple, all of these things God uses to prove to mankind that it is by his might and by his power, by his spirit, that all good is accomplished. And then in the next section, beginning at verse 15 and down through verse 33, it recounts the sad truth that keeps ringing true through in Scripture, and that is in prosperity, God's people are tempted to apostasy. Because when all is going well, people have a tendency to kick back, relax, and enjoy the ride instead of remaining intensely in prayer and seeking God moment by moment every day, knowing, of course, that even in prosperity, there is great danger. There is great danger. And Israel would actually go into apostasy and that would produce judgment of God upon them. The last section of the song, which is where we are today, begins at verse 39. Deuteronomy 32, 39. Now see that I, I am he. There is no God besides me. It is I who put to death and give life. I have wounded, and it is I who heal. There is no one who can deliver from my hand. Indeed, I lift up my hand to heaven and say, as I live forever, if I sharpen my flashing sword and my hand takes hold on justice, I will render vengeance on my adversaries and I will repay those who hate me. I will make my arrows drunk with blood and my sword shall devour flesh. With the blood of the slain and of the captives, from the long-haired leaders of the enemy. Rejoice, O nations, with his people, for he will avenge the blood of his servants and will render vengeance on his adversaries and will atone for his land and his people. Obviously, this passage deals with God's compassion and God's vengeance. There's a great struggle that's occurred down through the history of the church trying to maintain a balance between the judgment of God and the mercy and the compassion of God. And many almost view God as, as uh, kind of a Jekyll and Hyde. You know, one day he's angry and vindictive, and the next, next day he's compassionate and merciful. And this is not true. God is immutable. He's unchangeable. He is the same all the time. And it is we who have to learn how to blend judgment with mercy, how to temper the two together even in our own lives. And God does this perfectly. God is a God of judgment, but he's a God of mercy. And there is not a uh, bifurcation of the Bible, as some people like to say, and that is that the God of the Old Testament is a God of wrath and vengeance, and the God of the New Testament is a God of mercy and, and, just, and, 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 you know, and compassion. That's not true. It's the same all the way through. You find from Genesis through Revelation, I mean, right at the beginning of Genesis, what do we find? Adam and Eve violating the word of God blatantly. And what does God do? He slays an animal and clothes them with skins as a proclamation of redemption. Right at the very beginning. And yet when you read through the book of Revelation, you come to the end and it talks about those who are outside the kingdom being the and a long list of evildoers are listed there as being cast out of the kingdom. And of course, Satan and all of his followers being cast into the lake of fire. And so you find judgment in the new, compassion in the old, and vice versa. It's the same all the way through. God is a God of vengeance, but he's a God of compassion. 
And he will reach out to his people in compassion and he will avenge them of their enemies if they turn from their pagan ways, if they turn from the heathen gods and if they acknowledge that he, as he says in this passage here in verse 39, the last, uh, well, verse 39, the second phrase, and there is no God besides me. There is no God besides me. So what's the point in chasing after these other gods? They don't exist. As we've read in this passage and we read in, in Paul's writings, these gods are demons. And demons have no ultimate power. They will be cast with Satan into the lake of fire. So why worship them? There's no point in it whatsoever. The last portion of Deuteronomy 33, 32 is beyond the song and, and talks about how Moses applied it. So reading at verse 44 through verse 47 of Deuteronomy 32. Then Moses came and spoke all the words of this song in the hearing of the people. He with Joshua, the son of Nun. When Moses had finished speaking all these words to all Israel, he said to them, take to your heart all the words with which I am warning you today, which you shall command your sons to observe carefully, even all the words of this law. For it is not an idle word for you. Indeed, it is your life. And by this word, you shall prolong your days in the land which you are about to cross the Jordan to possess. They're standing at the tabernacle. Moses and Joshua have been called to the tabernacle by God. And they've stood out the door, outside the door of the tabernacle and God delivered the message that we read in chapter 31 and in chapter 32, the Song of Moses. And as they stand there now, they've turned to the people and Moses goes before the people to proclaim them with Joshua at his side. Joshua is now to inherit the mantle of leadership. So whatever Moses does, Joshua is his partner. Wherever Moses goes, Joshua is his shadow. So that the people will become well aware of the fact that Joshua is the man to succeed Moses and that there would be no question. So he goes before the people to proclaim this song. And you have to realize he doesn't proclaim this song by getting up there with his guitar, you know, and twanging away on this. It's a, it's a chant. He chants it in the, in the Hebrew style of chanting psalms. And he chants this song and delivers the challenge that we read there in verses 46 and 47. These are strong words. The strong words which Moses speaks to the people are as applicable to us today as they were to the people of Israel 3,400 years ago. The key to the transformed life is highlighted here. And the key to the transformed life is to take to your heart all the word and to observe it carefully. Take the word of God into your heart and observe it carefully, meaning to do it, as James tells us. This is the key to the transformed life. This is the key to the true life of a believer. The believer cannot survive without the Word of God. He'll dry up just like the plant which receives no water in the face of the hot sun. The first phrase of verse 47 is so critical, for it is not an idle word for you. It is not an idle word for you. You and I live in a day when the Word of God is taken by most to be an idle word. Most people consider the Bible, at best, literature. 
At worst, it's considered to be full of mythology. It's considered to be the work of various human hands. All prophecy was written post the event, not prior to the event, in some people's opinion. The word of God is not to be taken any more seriously than you would take the Quran or the Bhagavad Gita or any of the other supposed sacred literature. We, we have to realize ourselves, because certainly we know better about most of that, that to realize that it is not just literature to be read. The Psalms are not, for example, just nice little poems to read, but they are words of life. The Word of God is to be studied. It is to be taken to heart. It is to be acted upon. Because, he says in this passage, it is your life. Four little words. It, the Bible, is your life. Period. So, to me, it's so sad when you think about churches in America today where the pastor does not proclaim the Word of God from the pulpit, where the people are not encouraged to, to read the Word or even to have it. I've been to church services, you probably have too, where nobody even had a Bible. Think how sad. It's not only sad, it's, it's damning. Because it is your life. Without it, there is no hope. Peter said that. You, you're familiar certainly with the sixth chapter of John. Let me read the words there of Peter, which are to effect the same. You remember the story, um, Jesus is at Capernaum, the hometown of Peter, and Jesus has given this powerful sermon, which is a very challenging sermon, because he says there, I am the bread of life, and he talks about the man in the wilderness, and, and he goes on to say to the people, his followers, that my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me. And it goes on to say, this was a hard saying. And many of those who were following him said, we can't accept this. And they turned and walked away. And if you read down in verse 66 of John 6, as a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. Jesus said, therefore, to the twelve, you do not want to go away also, do you? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Peter, that interesting man who, when he got his foot out of his mouth, had some powerful things to say by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God, you know. And here he says, to whom shall we go, Lord? You alone have the words of eternal life. That, that is a very exclusive passage. And it has to be viewed as not just the opinion of a, of a disciple called Peter. It is the inspired word of God. And that's why we can't be pluralistic in our pluralistic society. We have to become narrow-minded bigots in the, eye, in the eyes of our society because that's what the word says. You alone have the words of life. Not Muhammad, not Buddha, you know, not Gandhi, nobody. Just Jesus has the words of, of life, of, of eternal life. The last few verses of the 32nd chapter of Deuteronomy, verse 48. And the Lord spoke to Moses that very same day, saying, Go up to this mountain of the Abarim, Mount Nebo, which is in the land of Moab, opposite Jericho, and look at the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the sons of Israel for a possession. Then die on the mountain where you ascend, and be gathered to your people, as Aaron your brother died on Mount Hor, and was gathered to his people. 
Because you broke faith with me in the midst of the sons of Israel at the waters of Meribah Kadesh, in the wilderness of Zin, because you did not treat me as holy in the midst of the sons of Israel. For you shall see the land at a distance, but you shall not go there into the land which I am giving the sons of Israel. These are God's final instructions to his man Moses. These are the last, this is the last day of this life changing, world changing individual by the name of Moses. He was to go up into that range of mountains known to them as the Abarim, and he was to climb to the top of a specific mountain known as Mount Nebo, 2,700 feet above sea level. And there he was to survey the temporal land of Canaan just before God took him to the eternal promised land. And even though Moses would never step foot inside of Canaan on the west side of the Jordan, he did not miss the true promised land. The land that had been promised to Abraham, the land that Abraham truly searched for, the ultimate promised land. You know the passage in Hebrews 11. It's uh, been read so often. Hebrews 11, verse 8. By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance. And when he went out, and he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was looking for the city, which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. And certainly that is more than Canaan. That is the eternal New Jerusalem as portrayed for us in the end of the book of Revelation. That is the city that Abraham was ultimately looking for. And that, of course, will be the city that Moses will discover too. And so although he will not step foot inside of what today we would call Israel, he would attain the true promised land as Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had 500 years before. In his final hours, before he ascended the mountain, Moses delivered a blessing upon his people I think this was a delight to Moses as well as, as a bit of a heart-wrenching experience for him to deliver this statement which is recorded for us in the 33rd chapter of Deuteronomy. You may remember that if you were with us when we were studying the book of Genesis that in the 49th chapter of Genesis, Jacob gave a prophetic blessing concerning his various sons just before he died. Moses is now doing basically the same thing. Moses is delivering upon those who had been his responsibility and had virtually become his children because he had led them for 40 years and counseled them and, and stood beside them through thick and thin. And he is now giving this blessing, this prayer to his people. The, it's, it's very poetic. Let's read the first five verses here of chapter 33. Now this is the blessing which Moses, the man of God, blessed the sons of Israel before his death. And he said, The Lord came from Sinai and dawned on them from Seir. He shone forth from Mount Paran, and he came from the midst of ten thousand holy ones. At his right hand there was flashing lightning for them. Indeed, he loves the people. 
all the holy ones are in his hand, and they followed in his in, in his in your steps. Everyone receives your words. Moses charged us with a law, a possession for the assembly of Jacob, and he was king in Jeshurun when the heads of the people were gathered, the tribes of Israel together. We have to remember, of course, this is poetry, but it's very interesting poetry. It was out Mount Sinai, the great mountain of God, Jebel Musa, as it is referred to today, if, if it is actually the mountain of Sinai. It was at that mountain that Israel was truly molded into the nation of God. Because there they swore a covenant with God, and there they received their national constitution, which was the law of God, the Torah. Whether Moses had actually seen a multitude of angels on the top of Mount Sinai, we don't know. He, he talks about ten thousands of the holy ones, and he's referring to angels here. Did he see angels when he was up on the top of Mount uh, Sinai receiving the law from God, 40 days and 40 nights? Did he, did he see mo uh, angels actually there? Or is he talking about a vision of the throne of God? Well, we don't know. It's not explained for us here. It, it need not be very mysterious to us, though, because he, he had a vision into the spiritual realm. And if you and I could see into the spiritual realm, we'd have seen a lot of angels by now and a lot of demons, too. And Moses was given that insight. And whatever the case is, it's a powerful image of the glory of God. Let me read you the words of the old um, 19th century commentator, Delich. He says this, The God who met Israel at Sinai in terrible majesty, out of the myriads of holy angels, who embraces all nations in love, and has all the holy angels in his power so that they lie at his feet and rise at his word, gave the law through Moses to the congregation of Jacob as a precious possession and became king in Israel. That happened at Mount Sinai. The monarchy, the theocracy of God over Israel was born at Mount Sinai. And they were given the constitution by which they were to live in accordance with his plan and his purpose for them. Verse 5 of this initial passage in, verse, in chapter 33 gives us a wonderful picture. In fact, kind of an almost an ideal statement where it says, He was king in Jeshurun when the heads of the people were gathered, the tribes of Israel together. He was king as they all stood there at the base of the mountain of Sinai. The word Jeshurun means upright one. When the tribes, when the people were standing there at the base of Mount Sinai, looking up at that mountain, and we talked about it in some detail when we were back there in the book of Exodus, and they saw this mountain quake and smoke and fire, and they heard the thunder and the voice of God coming from the mountain. They stood in awe. They stood in wonder. And they were humbly submitting to the God who became the God of Israel. And at that moment... He was king in Jeshurun. God was king in the midst of his upright people because at that hour they were an upright people. And as long as Israel walked humbly and obediently to God, he would be king of Jeshurun. Now God is king whether people believe him or listen to him or obey him or not. 
but not in the sense here of being king of the upright one in the midst of Israel. Only as Israel walked in obedience was this a reality for Israel. Because when God was the king of Jeshurun, Israel received the blessing of God in abundance. It rolled over them like waves of the sea. We turn to a parallel passage in Isaiah 44. The first five verses of Isaiah 44. But now listen, O Jacob, my servant, and Israel whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord who made you and formed you from the womb, who will help you. Do not fear, O Jacob, my servant, and you, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. I will pour out water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessings on your descendants, and they will spring up among the grass like poplars by streams of water. This one will say, I am the Lord's, and that one will call on the name of Jacob, and another will write on his hand, belonging to the Lord, and will name Israel's name with honor. This is when God is the king in Jeshurun, when God is the God of an obedient people, when his people are walking, following the dictates of the law, and bowing the knee, he is king in Jeshurun. And when that happened, immense blessing poured forth, even as we read here in Isaiah 44. The next large portion of this blessing of Moses upon Israel, beginning with verse 6 and moving on down through verse 24, we find here that Moses blesses the tribes by name. Verse 6, he says, may Reuben. Verse 7, and this regarding Judah. Verse 8, and of Levi and verse 12 of Benjamin, and on down through the list. He gives what can be understood to some degree as prophetic, but as you read those in detail, it's clear that they became primarily prayers, prayers on behalf of the tribes of the sons of Israel. Jacob, before he died, blessed his sons, and you may remember, we noted this, that when he blessed them, he blessed them in exact order of their age. He began with, with Reuben. He went to Simeon, Levi, Judah, all the way down the line. And when you come to this and you look at it and you say, well, he starts out with Reuben, that's okay. You suddenly realize he goes to Judah. Well, wait a minute. He goes from one to four. Then he goes back to <clears throat> two. And then he goes down to the last one. I mean, you know... It's quite obvious that as Moses blessed Israel, he was not concerned with their order in terms of the birth order. It, it almost seems random here other than beginning with Reuben, but certainly, obviously, in the mind of God, it wasn't random at all. But the purpose is uh, very difficult for us to, to ascertain as to the order, and maybe it doesn't really matter to us, probably mattered to Israel. There are some other interesting things to note here, however, that if you go through this list, you're going to discover when you reach the end of the list that there's a tribe missing. He goes through all, he, he names 12 tribes, but the tribe of Simeon is nowhere to be found in this list. No prayer, no blessing for the tribe of Simeon. And you might say, whoops, is this a mistake in the Bible? No, the Bible makes no mistakes. 
The only thing that we can assume from this probably is that Simeon would eventually be absorbed into the tribe of Judah and would cease to, dis- to exist as identifiably separate tribe ultimately as time goes on. And so it may have been as, as a prophetic statement here that the blessing of Judah would be extended to also the tribe of Simeon. As you read through this list, you discover that basically the longest statement here is to the tribe of Levi. And it is not because the tribe of Levi was Moses' tribe that he gives the longer prophecy prayer on their behalf, certainly. It's most likely because they were not only responsible for the spiritual welfare of the tribe of Levi, but they were responsible for the spiritual welfare of the entire nation. They were the priestly tribe. They were the tribe responsible for the tabernacle. They were the tribe responsible for all of the laws of the Leviticus code. And so he gives them uh, a long statement of prayer and blessing. There are a couple of verses here that I think highlight how these passages are both prophetic and a prayer. If you look at verse 6, May Reuben live and not die, nor may his men be few. Well, that's a short, (laughs) pithy little statement. It doesn't seem very prophetic. It seems very much like a prayer. May Reuben live and not die, nor his men be few. Definitely is a prayer prayed by Moses on behalf of this tribe. Why does he pray such a prayer for the tribe of Reuben? Well, as you will remember, Reuben was the eldest son. As the eldest son, he was supposed to exercise spiritual leadership over all of the tribe after his father had died. But you remember that he was a weak and indecisive man. And you remember also that Jacob prophesied that he would continue to be as unstable as water. This implies moral weakness. And such moral weakness jeopardized the very existence of the tribe. Moses acknowledging that, therefore, was, tra- was praying, O Lord, let the tribe survive and let it multiply and let the men not be few. In spite of this weakness, in spite of this failing, let this tribe continue to exist and have influence within the nation of Israel. But there's also prophecy here. In verse 23, we read, And of Naphtali he said, O Naphtali, satisfied with favor and full of the blessing of the Lord, take possession of the sea in the south. The sea referred to as the Sea of Galilee. Now what you discover is after the land is occupied, Naphtali is the tribe within whose borders was the Sea of Galilee. And so he is prophesying that which, of course, he couldn't have known himself in the flesh yet, because the division had not been made within Canaan itself, but it was prophesying that they would become possessors of the sea, the Sea of Galilee. But there's another really important concept that we need to get out of this passage. Let me read verses 24 and 25 to you. And of Asher he said, More blessed than sons is Asher. May he be favored by his brothers. May he dip his foot in oil. Your locks shall be iron and bronze, and according to your days, so shall your leisurely walk be. This 
passage of Scripture is a good takeoff point to emphasize the importance of correct biblical interpretation. I'm a firm believer that God, in inspiring the Word, knew that most people who would read the Word of God would not be, quote, Bible scholars. Okay? They would be average people who were probably not terribly educated, and so they would read the Word of God, and understanding would come through the preachers that they were supposed to listen to, and through the inspiration of the Spirit. This passage refers to the fact that the tribe of Asher would dwell in relative wealth. Their land would be prosperous and fertile, and the symbol of that prosperity would be that Asher wouldn't just anoint his foot with oil, he would be able to bathe his foot in oil. It's a statement of extravagance, above average, of, of wealth beyond the normal. The word Hebrew word here for oil is shemen. It means olive oil, the stuff you buy in the bottle at the store to put on your Greek salad or whatever. It was used for cooking. It was used for anointing. They anointed for ceremony. They anointed for health. They anointed for beauty. There are some gullible souls, however, in America who apply simplistic, modern American interpretation. And of course, their immediate response to this was petroleum. Hmm. May he dip his foot in petroleum. Well, that sounds like a good thing to do. I mean, how exciting. Therefore, these people have formed companies. They've gone over to Israel, and they've tried to locate the land that was part of Asher, and they have sunk millions of dollars into drilling for petroleum. They have found none. They look around, they find some olive oil, but they wouldn't find any petroleum. In order to raise these millions, they've appealed to undiscerning fundamentalists in America that if you would sink your money into this, oil will be discovered. And think of the rationale about this. As oil is discovered, Russia will become jealous, Russia will attack, and therefore Messiah will have to come. All of that from these two verses. This is what I'm talking about, simplistic Bible interpretation, which has nothing to do with context, nothing to do with history, nothing to do with culture, nothing to do with anything, really, having to do with this verse. But this has actually happened. This happened about 10, 15 years ago. And people poured their money into this. And of course, what did they get from it? Just a bunch of empty holes in the ground. Because no, and Israel was willing to cooperate with this because, you know, if oil could be fine, wonderful. But it wasn't found. And people lost their money. You know, Christians are often gullible for scams of many kinds, as you've probably been reading about lately. Certain Ponzi things that have been going on where you put your money in and they promise they'll double your money in six months. And what they're doing, of course, is getting money from everybody. And the first people are getting their money back plus some. But eventually it runs out because there is no real investment there. And certain people who have weeped and wailed about they thought they were doing God's will have ended up in prison because they've run these kinds of... I mean, Christians... What does the scripture says? We're to be as harmless as doves, but wise as serpents. Not gullible. Not accepting any old kind of biblical interpretation. In, in, in interpreting the Bible, we need to avoid complex allegorical interpretations where it's kind of convoluted and you read all these things into this and you see all these images and pictures or going to the other extreme where you interpret it in a simple, out-of-context way like this. 
It's very, very important to always interpret Scripture within its context. What is it saying all around it? What is the flow of it here? Don't take a verse out. This is what cults do all the time. Pull verses out, out of context. I mean, there's a passage in the Psalms which says, there is no God. Pull that right out of the Bible. Say, look, the Bible says there is no God. Of course, it says just before that, the fool has said there is no God. Yeah. No, nobody wants to put out the whole verse if they're trying to prove that the Bible teaches atheism. It's very important to study the scripture within its historical, cultural context also. We need to understand that many of the passages were written so that they would be understood within the culture of that day, and we need to understand the culture of that day so, so that we get a per proper interpretation. That's why a simple little word study on the word oil here would, would produce the fact that it's talking about olive oil, not petroleum. But, you know, some might interpret it otherwise. Almost all heresies and cults are based upon either ignorant or intentional misinterpretation of Scripture. You've all faced this as you've dealt with a Jehovah's Witness at the door or a Mormon at the door, and you know they just take Scripture out of context, they twist it, they misinterpret it, uh, they, they deal with it in a way that doesn't fit within the historical flow, the contextual flow of Scripture. It's very important that we study it that way, and, and that's what we've endeavored to do through the course of these years, as it's turned out now, through the, the Pentateuch. Well, the blessing of Moses is concluded with a, with a beautiful hymn. But I have several things we need to pray for, and I, I don't want to get partway into this and have to, to leave it. So we'll pick up with 33, verse 26 uh, next week, and we'll talk about this hymn. Because, again, a proper interpretation is important here. Because you read this passage, and, and like, for example, verse 26, there is no God like the God of Jeshurun who rides the heavens to your help. So you get your binoculars out and see if you can see God coming on a cloudy chariot or something, you know. And people sometimes literally interpret things that way instead of keeping it within the poetic uh, context of Scripture.